And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is November the 8th, 312th day of the year. 53 days remain to the end of the year. And let's see. All the days and observances, which you all asked me to do. National Cappuccino Day, STEM Steam Day. It's uh, if you celebrate it, you ignite your passion for science and technology and engineering and art and math. Endless possibilities, allegedly. World Town Planning Day, World Pianist Day, National Parents as Teachers Day, World Radiography Day. National Native American Heritage Month, National Gratitude Month, National Novel Writing Month. I've done that. Gonna do another one. Lung Cancer Awareness Month. Go to Amazon and look up my name, Ken Hudnall. National Family Caregivers Month. No Shave November. Uh, National Diabetes Month. National Epilepsy Awareness Month. And National Healthy Skin Month. Alrighty. Nine sixty A.D. Battle of Andraslus. Byzantines under Leo, Focus the Younger, score a crushing victory over the Hamdanid Emir of Aleppo, Saif Al Thalda. 1278, Tran Tron Trong, the second emperor of the Tran dynasty, decides to pass the throne to his crown prince, Tran Kham, and take the post of retired emperor, a job created just for him. 1291, Republic of Venice enacts a law confining most of Venice's glassmaking industry to the island of Murano. 1519, Hernando Cortez enters Tenochtitlan and Aztec ruler Montezuma welcomes him with a great celebration. Of course, eventually, Hernan Cortez uh, murders Montezuma. 1520, Stockholm bloodbath begins. Successful invasion of Sweden by Danish forces results in the execution of about a hundred people, mostly noblemen. 1576, Eighty Years' War, pacification of Ghent. States General of the Netherlands meet and unite to oppose the Spanish occupation. 1602. Uh, the Bodleian Library at the University of Oxford is open to the public. 1605. Robert Catesby, ringleader of the gunpowder plotters, is uh, killed. The uh, the plot was actually planned in the gatehouse of the manor house of Ashby St. Ledger. 1614, Japanese Damo, Don Justo Takayama is exiled to the Philippines by Shogun Takagawa Leyasu for being Christian. Unforgivable in those days. <coughs> 1620, Battle of White Mountain takes place near Prague. Ending in a decisive Catholic victory in only two hours. 
1644, the Fuzi Emperor, the third emperor of the Qing Dynasty, is enthroned in Beijing after the collapse of the Ming Dynasty as the first King Emperor to rule over China. 1745, Charles Edward Stuart invades England with an army of approximately 5,000 that would later participate in the Battle of Culloden. 1837, Mary Leon founds Mount Holyoke Female Seminary, which later becomes Mount Holyoke College. 1861, American Civil War, the Trent Affair. USS San Jacinto stops the British mail ship Trent and arrests two Confederate envoys, sparking a diplomatic crisis between the UK and the US. 1889, Montana is admitted as the 41st U.S. state. 1892, the New Orleans General Strike begins, uniting black and white American trade unions in a successful four-day general strike for the very first time. 1895, while experimenting with electricity, Wilhelm Röntgen discovers the X-ray. 1901, gospel riots, bloody clashes take place in Athens following the translation of the Gospels into Demotic Greek. 1917, the first Council of People's Commissars is formed, including Vladimir Lenin, Leon Trotsky, and Joseph Stalin. 1919, Eisenfeld Massacre. Members of the Revolutionary Insurgent Army of Ukraine murder 136 Mennonite colonists at uh, Cheskyoyo, initiating a series of massacres, resulted in the death of 827 Ukrainian Mennonites. For those that are not familiar with Mennonite sect, um, the descendants of Dutch and North German Anabaptists who settled in the Vistula Delta, West Prussia, for about 250 years. And they established colonies in the Russian Empire, in present-day Ukraine and the Volga region, Orenburg Governorate in western Siberia, uh, beginning about 1789. Um, since the late 19th century, many have immigrated to countries that are located throughout the Western Hemisphere. The rest of them were forcibly relocated. So very few of the descendants currently live in the locations of the original colonies. The uh, Russian Mennonites are traditionally multilingual, but Klodich, uh, or Low German, is our first language, so as the lingua franca. Um, 2014, or several hundred thousand Russian Mennonites, about 200,000 live in Germany, some in Mexico, Bolivia, Paraguay, Belize. Tens of thousands of them living in Canada and the U.S. A few thousand live in Argentina, Uruguay, and Brazil. The uh, it's one of many sects that have, uh, shall we say, unusual customs. 1920, Rupert Bear, illustrated by uh, Mary Tortell, makes his first appearance in print. It's a children's book, don't you know? 1923, Birhard Putsch, Munich, Adolf Hitler, leads the Nazis in an unsuccessful attempt to overthrow the German government. 1932, Franklin D. Roosevelt selected the 32nd president of the U.S., defeating incumbent President Herbert Hoover. 1933, Great Depression. Saw the New Deal. President Franklin Roosevelt unveils the Civil Works Administration, an organization designed to create jobs for more than 4 million unemployed people. 1936, Spanish Civil War. Francoist troops fail in their effort to capture Madrid, but... 
They do begin the three-year siege of Madrid afterwards. 1937, the Nazi exhibition, known as the Eternal Jew, opens in Munich. 1939, Venlo incident. Two British agents of SIS are captured by the uh, Germans. The, um, the SIS is the Secret Intelligence Service, also known as MI6. That's the Foreign Intelligence Service of the UK. They're tasked mainly with covert overseas collection, analysis of human intelligence, and support of the country's national security. And the Venlo incident was a covert operation carried out by the Germans' Nazi Party's uh, SD. Uh, resulted in the capture of two British secret intelligence agents um, about 16 feet from the German border on the outskirts of the Dutch city of Venlo. This incident was later used by the uh, German government to link Britain to George uh, Elser's uh, failed assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler at the uh, Bergerbergkala in March on November 8th of justified Germany's invasion of the Netherlands, which was a neutral country at that point in time, on May 10th, 1940. All led up to the war. Okay, 1939, in Munich. Adolf Hitler narrowly escapes the assassination attempt of George Eisner while celebrating the 16th anniversary of the Bilhaupusch. 1940, Greco-Italian War. Italian invasion of Greece fails as outnumbered Greek units repulse the Italians at the, the Battle of uh, Elia Kalamas. The... Uh, the Italian army was not, uh, shall we say, a, um, a major force. I mean, when they tried to invade Ethiopia, the Ethiopians almost beat them, and they were on horseback with spears. 1942, World War II, French resistance coup in Algiers, in which 400 civilian French patriots utilized the Vichyist 19th Army Corps after... Uh, they neutralized the vicious 19th Army Corps after 15 hours of fighting. And they arrest several vicious generals following allowing the immediate uh, success of Operation Torch in Algiers. 1950 Korean War. U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Russell Brown, while piloting an F-80 shooting star, shoots down two North Korean MiG-15s in the first jet aircraft to jet aircraft dogfight in history. 1957, Pan Am Flight 7 vanishes between San Francisco and Honolulu. Wreckage and bodies are discovered a week later. Also on 57, Operation Grapple 10, round C1. UK conducts the first successful hydrogen bomb test over uh, Kiramati in the Pacific. 1960, John F. Kennedy is elected the third fifth president of the U.S., defeating incumbent Vice President Richard Nixon, who would later be elected president in 68 and 72 before he was railroaded out of office. 1963, Finnair 0 Flight 217 crashes near uh, Reheim Airport in Jamala uh, Island, killing 22 people. 1965, the British Indian Ocean Territory is created. 
consisting of the Chagos Archipelago, uh, Aldebra, Farquhar, and Desroche Islands. Nineteen sixty-five, the Murder Act of nineteen sixty-five, which was the abolition of the death penalty, is given royal assent, formally abolishing uh, the death penalty at the in the UK for almost all crimes. 1965, the 173rd Airborne ambush by over 1,200 Viet Cong in Operation Hump during the Vietnam War. While the 1st Battalion, Royal Australian Regiment, fight one of the first set-piece engagements of the war between Australian forces and the Viet Cong in the Battle of Gang Toy. 1965, American Airlines Flight 383 crashes in Constance, Kentucky. Kills 58 people. 1966, former Massachusetts Attorney General Edward Brooke becomes the first African-American elected to the U.S. Senate since Reconstruction. Also in 1966, U.S. President Lyndon, I'm going to be King Johnson, signs into law an antitrust exemption allowing the National Football League to merge with the upstart American Football League. 1968, the Vienna Convention on Road Traffic is signed to facilitate international road traffic and the uh, Increase road safety by standardizing uniform traffic rules among the signatories. 1972, American paid television network HBO launches. Used to have some good stuff on it. 1973, the right ear of John Paul Getty III is delivered to a newspaper outlet along with a ransom note, convincing his father to pay $2.9 million in ransom. The... um, he was the grandson of J. Paul Getty, who was at one point in time the richest man in the world. While living in Rome in 73, he was kidnapped by the Granada and held for a $17 million ransom. His grandfather really didn't want to pay, but after John Paul Getty III, seven year was received by a newspaper, his grandfather negotiated a payment of $2.2 million and Getty's release five months after being kidnapped. He went on to develop an addiction to drugs, including alcohol, soon after that, leading to an overdose and stroke that left him disabled for the rest of his life. The um, Now, after he was released, his mother suggested he call his grandfather and thank you for paying the ransom, but J. Paul Getty refused to come to the phone. None of the kidnappers were apprehended, including uh, Girolamo Pironelli and Severio Mamoliti, high-ranking members of the Indragetta, an organized crime organization in Calabria. Two of the kidnappers were convicted and sent to prison. The others were acquitted for lack of evidence, including the, uh, the bosses of the group. Most of the ransom money was never recovered. In 1977, Getty had an operation to rebuild the ear as kidnappers had cut off. The uh, well, Gaddy and other members of his family eventually became uh, citizens of the Republic of Ireland in return for investments of a million pounds each under a law that has since been repealed. Gaddy died at his uh, father's estate in Wormsley Park, Buckinghamshire, 2011. He's only 54. Following a long illness, he'd been in poor health since he, uh, his massive drug overdose in 1981.
Alrighty. 1977, Manolis Andronicus, a Greek archaeologist, professor to Aristotle University of Thessalonica, discovers the tomb of Philip II of Macedonia at Virginia. 1981, Earl Mexico Flight 110 crashes near Zihuatanejo, Mexico, killing all 18 people on board. 1983, Tag Angola Flight uh, 462 crashes after takeoff from Lubango Airport, killing all 130 people on board. UNITA claims to have shot down the aircraft. This has been disputed, but they still insist they did. And for those that are not familiar with UNITA, it was the National Union for the Total Independence of Angola, the second largest political party in Angola. It fought alongside the popular movement for the liberation of Angola and the Angolan War for Independence. Um, this was a Cold War proxy war with UNITA receiving military aid from the People's Republic of China from 1966 until 1975 and later from the U.S. and apartheid South Africa. Um, Nineteen eighty-seven Remembrance Day bombing. Provisional IRA bomb explodes and and is killing Northern Ireland during a ceremony honoring those who had died in wars involving British forces. Twelve people were killed, and sixty-three were wounded. Nineteen eighty-eight Vice President George H. W. Bush is elected as the forty-first president. Nineteen ninety-four Republican Revolution on the night of the. The 1994 U.S. midterm elections, Republicans make historic electoral gains by securing massive majorities in both houses of Congress. 54 seats in the House and 8 seats in the Senate, additionally, bringing to a close four decades of Democratic nomination. 1999, Bruce Miller is killed in his junkyard near Flint, Michigan. His wife, uh, Sherry Miller, who convinced her online lover, Jerry Cassidy, to kill him before he killed himself, was convicted of the crime and what became the world's first internet murder. In 2002, Iraq disarmament crisis, UN Security Council Resolution 1441. UN Security Council unanimously approves a resolution on Iraq forcing Saddam Hussein to disarm or face serious consequences. 2004, Iraq War. More than 10,000 U.S. troops and a fall number of Iraqi army units participated in a siege on the insurgent stronghold of Fallujah. 2006, uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Israeli Defense Force kills 91 Palestinian civilians in their homes during the shelling of um, Belt Hanun. 2011, a potentially hazardous asteroid 2005, YU-55, passes 0.85 lunar distances from Earth. That's about uh, 201,000 miles, the closest known approach by an asteroid of its brightness since 2010, um, XC, in 1976. 2013, Typhoon Haiyun, one of the strongest tropical cyclones ever recorded, strikes the the Sias region of the Philippines. The storm left at least 6,340 people dead with over 1,000 missing and 
caused uh, $2.86 billion in 2013 dollars in damage. 2016, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi publicly announced his withdrawal of um, 501,000 denomination banknotes. 2016, Donald Trump selected the 45th president of the U.S., defeating Hillary Clinton, the first woman ever to receive a major party's nomination. Well, since she had something on everybody, that's not surprising. And in 2020, Myanmar holds the 2020 general election, re-electing a government led by the National League for Democracy, which is deposed by the Burmese military the following February during the 2021 Myanmar coup d'etat. Well, it's been interesting to watch all the shenanigans that have been going on in the Middle East. Um, Hamas attacked, killed a large number of Israelis and kidnapped others, knowing that the Israeli Defense Force would clean their clock, and they have done so. Uh, the Houthis, uh, an Iranian-backed uh, group in uh, Yemen, um, have been attempting to shell Israel. Um, it, it's just an unmitigated mess, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Now, let's see. We've got, uh, you know, a lot of pro-Hamas students demonstrating at our various universities. If they knew what they were demonstrating about, it'd be a different story. Uh, I've listened to some of the discussions by these uh, so-called activists. And it's a very romantic idea to be an activist. Stand up for what you think is right. But if you don't know the history, and if you don't know the underlying issues, may I suggest you keep your mouth shut. Instead of opening your mouth and letting everybody know that, frankly, you're a fool. Right now, we got Hillary Clinton running around comparing Donald Trump to Hitler that he has to be stopped before he wins again. Uh, the Republicans are going to um, take away the budget from the vice president's office because they say it's a waste of money. She doesn't do anything. There have been, uh, you know, stories have come out about the leaders of Hamas. Now, most, I would say 90% of the people in Gaza live just above the poverty level. All the international aid that pours in winds up being diverted into Hamas's pocket, and the leaders live in a lap of luxury far away from Gaza. I mean, they would not live in that mess for anything. A lot of them live in uh, penthouses in um, Dubai. Well, see the problem. They've got so many fanatics. 
in Palestine, and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of injustice. But the group that run Hamas uses all the uproar and upset to make money. It's their job. You don't see them in the desert fighting with the IDF. They're sitting in their cushy penthouses enjoying life with the millions and millions and millions of dollars that they take from the various facilities there in, uh, in Gaza. The... Um, It's interesting to see that some of our more elite schools, they've got students demonstrating some of the worst anti-Semitism I've seen in, in all my years. And yet none of these students have wanted for anything in their life. And they're in the best schools in the country. And they're parroting what people have told them. Well, unfortunately, our government's not helping either. Well, my system is not playing nice. The, um, the problem with the president, <coughs> excuse me, he is... If he was ever effective, and I've watched him for many, many years, and a lot of the stories he tells just are not true. Um, that he talks Tom, Tom Thurman into uh, backing the Civil Rights Bill, that didn't happen. Um, he may have suggested it, but Tom Thurman wouldn't have listened to him on his worst day. And the the two attacks on the White House, both of which, uh, if not led, were instigated by Talib. Uh, the media were quick to say it wasn't an insurrection; it was a peaceful demonstration, uh, where anything that had Donald Trump's name on it was certainly an insurrection, even if the, uh, Donald Trump wasn't there. So this is just, we're talking partisan politics that have gotten very dirty. All right. Well, we've been talking about unfinished business. Let's talk about uh, the murder of Nora Fuller. Took place in 1902 in San Francisco. Even in 1902, it was something of a melting pot for immigrants from all races and classes. Now it's pretty much a ghost town. I was there 
about 30 years ago. There were people sleeping in doorways then. And now, most of the major companies have pulled out because of crime. Uh, but 1902 was a time when many children were forced to forego what we'd call a normal childhood and enter the labor force doing whatever job they could in order to make some money to help keep a roof over the family's head. And this was the case of Eleanor Nora Fuller. Now, she was born in China, 15 years old that year when she was forced to drop out of school to earn a living and help her mother and three siblings. And the previous year had not been a good year for the little family. Parents had divorced, and the five of them were having to make it on just what the mother could bring in. And for that reason, Nora decided she had to help out. <clears throat> now, she wanted to try and make a go of it in the theater, and they made inquiries at an agency to try and find employment in the entertainment industry. But on... Yeah. The um, It was January 8th, 1902, when she got an opportunity that she just could not turn her back on. Saw an advertisement in the San Francisco Chronicle. It said, wanted young white girl to take care of a baby. Good home, good wages. Well, hoping to at least get an interview, she answered the ad and got a postcard in the mail. Postcard instructed her to meet a man named John Bennett at the popular restaurant at 55 Geary Street at either 1 p.m. or 6 p.m. Day of the meeting, which was January the 11th, she left her home about 5 p.m. for her appointment. Next thing heard from the young woman was a telephone call to her home that was answered by her 12-year-old brother, and Nora informed him she was at John Bennett's residence at 1500 Geary Street been offered a job of caring for the baby, and her employer wanted her to start work at once. Nora's mother came on the line and insisted she come home and start her job on Monday. Well, Nora eventually agreed and hung up, and that was the last anybody heard from Nora. And even though she didn't come home that evening, as she'd been instructed to do and had agreed to do, surprisingly her mother didn't report her as missing for a few more days. It has to be said, though, that once she was reported as missing, the San Francisco police immediately went to work trying to find the young woman. And based on what Nora's mother told them, officers first went to the popular restaurant where Nora was to have had the meeting with John Bennett. And the owner of the restaurant, F.W. Crone, told officers that at about 5.30 on January 11th, a man had come to the counter to let him know he was expecting a young girl to come in looking for John Bennett, and the police sent her to his table. And as the man is recognized as a regular by both the owner and well as a long time waiter, nobody thought anything odd about that request. In fact, upon a more thorough questioning, both swore the man had been dining there regularly for at least ten years, though neither had known his name until that day. Well, the owner swore he hadn't seen the girl come into the restaurant, but then again he couldn't say she hadn't. He did say that John Bennett waited for about half an hour after which he went outside and paced impatiently for a few more minutes before leaving. Both the waiter and the, the owner rec uh, described John Bennett as being about 40, average height and weight, brown hair, brown mustache. He presented what was described as a smart, respectable appearance. 
Well, the officers went to 1500 Gary Street, the address that Nora had given her brother in the telephone call, and they found it was not a valid address as it was merely a vacant lot. And since Nora had allegedly called her home from this address, the question now arose, had Nora lied, and if she did, why? Well, for the next month, there was extensive newspaper coverage regarding what would be called the Nora Fuller case. It splashed across the front page of all the San Francisco newspapers. But in spite of a citywide manhunt, no trace of the young girl was ever found. In addition, there was absolutely no trace of the mysterious John Bennett found as well. Well, eventually this was to change. Afternoon of February 8th, H.E. Dean, an inspector and rent collector for the real estate firm of Umsen and Company, entered a rental property located at 2211 Sutter Street in San Francisco. Residence was locked. Clear there was no one at home, so Dean used a pass key to enter the premises. Now, going in using a pass key was not a normal practice, but... Uh, the rent was due, and Umsen and company had uh, been informed the tenants had moved out without any notice. The house had only been rented for a month by uh, C.B. Hawkins. All attempts to contact him had been in vain. So it was that H.E. Dean was sent to check on things. And as soon as he entered the premise, Dean knew something wasn't right. Wasn't a stick of furniture on the entire first floor. Went from room to room, found there wasn't a single indication anybody had ever been there in quite some time. Well, finishes it, finishing his inspection of the first floor, he slowly climbed the stairs to the second. Went slowly down the second floor hallway, checking each room he came to, only to see that each one was empty. Finally, he noticed a door to one of the back bedrooms was closed tightly. Slowly, cautiously, he opened that closed door to see the room was in darkness. All the shades had been drawn down to the very bottom of the window. Just able to make out there were pieces of clothing strewn about the floor of that room. Well, still thinking, feeling, I guess you could say, that something wasn't right. He didn't go any further into that room. Siding caution was the better part of valor. He pulled the door softly closed and retreated to the street and came back with police officer Gill. Together they went back to the, up the stairs and pausing just outside that closed bedroom door. Taking a lead, Officer Gill cautiously entered that dimly lit bedroom, crossed to the closest window, raised the shade, and turned toward the only piece of furniture in the room, which was a large bed. Lying on the bed was a, a young girl, and she, clearly she was dead, and her body was partially decomposed. She'd been there for some time. Well, at this point, Officer Gill left the room, closing the door behind him, and with Dean in tow, he left the house to summon detectives. And after an initial examination, it was determined the dead body was that of the missing Nora Fuller. She'd been raped and strangled. The body had been savagely mutilated. A thorough search of the property revealed one towel, mostly empty bottle of whiskey, the butt of a cigar, and several pieces of junk mail addressed to Mrs. C.B. Hawkins of 221 Sutter Street. And one of the pieces of junk mail had been opened and stuffed in a pocket of Nora Fuller's jacket. A purse was also found, but it contained neither money nor the postcard that a letter to meet John Bennett. Well, further investigation revealed that the bed was secondhand had been bought the day after the house had been rented, as had the sheets and the pillows and the quilt. Bedding had been placed on the bed straight out of the packaging without the benefit of being laundered first. 
Only other furniture in the entire house was a single chair that had also been purchased secondhand. Well, further forensic examination showed that Nora had some alcohol in her system. The last thing she'd eaten was an apple, which had been eaten, it was estimated, about an hour or two before her death. Nora's mother said that Nora had eaten an apple just before setting out for her appointment. And this, of course, led authorities to believe she'd been murdered almost immediately after arriving at the house. Well, police believe the man known as John Bennett and the man who rented the house as C.B. Hawkins were probably the same man. No flies on those cops. Canvas of secondhand shops in the area confirmed a man fitting Bennett's description. and purchased uh, pieces of furniture and bedding only a few days before Nora disappeared. And they all said that the uh, deliveries were made to uh, 221 Sutter Street. Information called into question the initial assumption Nora had been killed immediately. Well, I'll go to all the trouble renting a house and buying furniture if the plan was to kill her almost as soon as you got her there. And if things were confusing enough, a friend of Nora's came forward with a new twist to the mystery. According to Madge Graham, Nora had been secretly dating an older man by the name of John Bennett for quite some time. Madge went on to say that she'd even covered for Nora by telling Nora's mother she and Nora at the uh, theater when in actuality, Nora was out on a date with Bennett. Madge also claimed the ad for the nanny job was actually a ruse to fool Mrs. Fuller into thinking that Nora was applying for a job as a nanny when she really intended to meet her much older boyfriend. While the entire concept that Nora would go to the trouble and expense of placing an ad and answering it boggled the imagination, it would explain why Nora had given her mother the wrong address. Of course, the placing of the ad did tend to be an extreme method of getting time to meet a man, and ads weren't cheap by any means, even in 1902. Well, Madge's story received some support when a grocer by the name of A. Minky came forward to reveal that Nora often came to his store to use the phone to call a nearby hotel when her family would have had a phone at home. It was thought maybe she was calling her mysterious older boyfriend. Well, naturally, the police were somewhat suspicious of Madge Graham's story, but then a new lead came to light that immediately supported Madge's version. January 18th, a week after Nora's disappearance and three weeks before the body was found, police got a report that a man by the name of Charles B. Hadley, clerk at the San Francisco Examiner, allegedly embezzled a large sum of money from his employers and vanished. Well, investigating this embezzlement case, police talked to Hadley's girlfriend, Ollie Blazier, had a few interesting things to say. Gave police samples of Hadley's handwriting that bore a marked resemblance not only to John Bennett's handwriting on the classified ad form he had submitted to the San Francisco Chronicle, but also to the handwriting of C.B. Hawkins on the rental agreement for the house at 221 Sutter Street. So now the question was, could the missing Charles Hadley actually be John Bennett as well as C.B. Hawkins? Well, Ollie Blazier also told police that Hadley had a peculiar fondness for tenderloin. And this fact referenced uh, information received from the owner of the restaurant that John Bennett would always order a porterhouse steak and then only eat the tenderloin portion. And Hadley seemed oddly disturbed upon reading in the newspaper that Nora Fuller had been murdered and she found blood on a few pieces of his clothing about the time it was believed that Nora had been murdered. Alney Blazier also added as an afterthought that though Hadley was clean shaven, he sometimes wore a false mustache. Well, further investigation also revealed that Charles B. Hadley was actually Charles Start, 
wanted for another charge of embezzlement in Minneapolis in 1989 and also allegedly raped another 15-year-old girl in San Francisco in the year 1900. So now the question became, who was Charles Stark and was he really the killer of 15-year-old Nora Fuller? In spite of the nationwide manhunt, Hadley, or whatever his name might be, was never found. So this case leads to several questions that have not been answered. Was the body on the bed really that of Nora Fuller? When and how did she actually die? And how long had she been dead when the body was found? And if John Bennett was really Nora's boyfriend, why did he ask the owner of the restaurant to direct a girl that would ask for him to his table? And, even though the police never investigated, who was Nora calling at the nearby hotel? We were assuming Nora was planning to set up housekeeping with an unknown man. There was no proof that it was Hadley or Bennett or whatever his name may have been. This was a case where forensic evidence uh, would have been very important if there ever was a case. Forensically, they could have answered all these questions. Well, let's go to uh, the death of little Lord Fauntleroy. I've heard that name all my life. Didn't know it was a real person. It was March 8, 1921. body of a young boy, estimated to be between 5 and 7, was fished out of the pond near the Laughlin Stone Company by one John Burlich. Initial examination suggested the child had been killed by a blow to the head with a blunt object and had been in the water for some time. Also determined the child had brown eyes and blonde hair, and from his clothing, it believed the child's parents may have had money. Well, due to the child's apparel, the investigators began to call the boy Little Lord Fauntleroy. And since the assumption were the boy's parents were affluent, it was assumed that uh, this case would be quickly solved, at least as far as the um, child's identity was concerned. But that was not to prove to be the case. Detailed description of the dead child immediately circulated, but nobody came forward to claim the, bo- uh, the body. Police even displayed the body at the local funeral home for several days, but nobody appeared concerned about the child. Then a $1,000 reward was posted for any information about the boy's identity, but still nobody came forward with any information. Just got uh, interesting news bulletin. U.S. forces carried out airstrikes in Syria after... The Houthis shot down a drone. Well, only one clue came forward. An employee of the O'Loughlin Stone Company reported that a couple had come to the business office a month before the child's body was found and asked if somebody had seen the little boy in that area. And they seemed very upset. man was seen to scan the area around the quarry carefully as though looking for something. But finally, the couple drove off and... Unfortunately, the employee failed to get their license number, so it was impossible for the authorities to find them. No speculation the dead boy had been kidnapped for ransom. If this was the case, it was believed the kidnappers may have told the parents their child be near the quarry. If this was the case, though, why didn't the parents go to the police? Then it was a report that uh, a woman uh, had asked about the child had committed suicide by jumping into the quarry where the body's, uh, boy's body had been found. But a thorough search by the police of the quarry revealed no woman's body. And then there was a report that came from, from a man from Chicago by the name of J.B. Belson. 
He thought the child might be his nephew and the child might have been murdered by his sister's ex-husband. Police investigated this lead thoroughly before deciding that it uh, didn't lead anywhere. A local woman from Wakisha by the name of uh, Minnie Conrad raised the money to bury the child and even took care of this grave until her own death. Interesting side note, there have been uh, numerous reports over the years of another woman whose face was always concealed behind a veil would come and leave flowers on little Lord Fauntleroy's grave. She was never identified. To date, the real identity of that dead child has never been determined. But I would suggest with today's interest in genealogy and the DNA database, it, uh, those databases that are available, his relatives could be found. Of course, that would take somebody to care enough to to go to all the trouble to dig up the body and uh, do the examinations. You know, there's been a lot of stories coming out of the state of Georgia. Now, I'm not one who's a fan of justice in Georgia. And I talked about... Um, Mary Fagan's murder and the fact that the wrong man was lynched by officials, no less. Well, there was another famous crime, the story of the Atlanta Ripper. Now, Atlanta's been the scene of a lot of bloody murders, but the story of the Atlanta Ripper is unusual in the length of time the killer prowled the streets of this city without being apprehended. And interestingly enough, this case didn't get much in the way of publicity outside the city as the victims of this, the fiend known as the Atlanta Ripper were members of the black community. Then, as now, in Georgia, issues in the black community tend to stay in the black community. And quite often, the black community is its own worst enemy. Now, these killings actually appeared to have begun in the year 1909. There's no clear evidence that attributed every one of these killings to the same individual. Actually, the police never really pursued the idea of the Atlanta Ripper, believing there was no such thing. But the circumstances of each killing seemed to show a decided relationship to each other, making it likely it was one person. Uh, it wasn't really talked about that much in those days, but clearly they were dealing with a serial killer. First killing probably committed by the Ripper took place in the 1909. April of that year, the body of Della Reed was discovered in a trash pile. September of that year, a female victim who has never been identified was pulled out of Peachtree Creek. She'd been stabbed and her throat had been cut. A series of murders that many people feel were actually committed by the Ripper continued through the year 1910. In addition to the two listed uh, and I just listed, there were seven others. Of course, researchers have argued that these seven murders may not have been committed by the Ripper since all but one was shot. They could simply have been the victims of domestic violence or other circumstances that led to their murders. And certainly it wouldn't be beyond the realm of possibility these women were in fact Ripper victims. But he simply had changed his method of killing. Now, many who've written about this time period have pointed to the clear institutionalized racism that existed in Atlanta, and I'll be the first to admit it that it does, and it did. It's only three years before the first murder when there were massive race riots in Atlanta in which 25 African Americans were killed by white mobs following a series of accusations they were raping white women. 
Many of these accusations later proved to be false, but that didn't bring back those killed during the riots. Also true during this time period, in spite of claims of tolerance and progress in Atlanta that were made by the mayor of Atlanta and the governor of Georgia, the Jim Crow laws were still on the books. Black voters are still faced with a poll tax that literally disenfranchised them, and police investigators generally paid little attention to crimes committed in the black community. When it was in 1910 that it began to become clear to even the most myopic city leader that the evidence supported the idea there was a single individual who was committing these murders. He tells study of the evidence, when prejudice is put aside, these murders all showed the hallmarks of a woman-hating psychopath in the, the vein of Jack the Ripper who terrorized London in the 1880s. The murder who had seemed to gain the full attention of Atlanta police took place uh, October 3rd, 1910. That morning, the body of a 23-year-old cook by the name of Maggie Brooks was discovered. Had it been bashed in with a rock or some other similar weapon. As time went on, it became clear to police that this bashing into the skull was a trademark for the murders that happened later on. The trademark, so to speak, of the Atlanta Ripper. Of course, at the time, police still had to not come to understand this was the work of a serial killer. When uh, one looks at the cases individually, not as a whole, patterns that are, are very hard to spot. Frankly, with the murder rate in the black community in the early 1900s, a ripper could have started killing well before 1909, but this fact will never be confirmed due to the desire of authorities not to open old wounds or further embarrass themselves for their failure to miss the signs of a serial killer. But at the time, since there were... No more unexplained murders of black women for the balance of the year. It was business as usual. January 22, 1911, 35-year-old Rosa Trice was found with her skull caved in and her throat slashed. Evidence showed her body had been drugged to where it was found, only 100 yards from her own doorstep. In a typical myopic knee-jerk reaction, police immediately arrested her husband, John Trice, for the murder. Case closed. Another brilliant performance by Atlanta's finest. Till they had to release it for lack of evidence, that is. Well, in hindsight, Rosa Trice's murder became the template against which the other Ripper murders were compared. Ripper's modus operandi was to approach a woman on the street, bash in her head, drag her body to a more secluded spot where he could take his time with her. Generally, this meant the victim was stabbed, mutilated before her throat was finally slashed. Another peculiar action of the Ripper was to cut the woman's uh, shoes off her feet and take them with him. In early February, Lucinda McNeil was murdered with a straight razor. Immediately, there were those who believed the Ripper had struck again. But in typical fashion, the police immediately arrested the husband based on some witness statement that Lucinda had been killed by her husband in a drunken rage. No evidence, of course, but accusation is enough in Georgia. Charles McNeil was tried and convicted of her murder, getting a life sentence in prison. Like finding a needle in a haystack, the police were dealing with too many crimes to be able to get the big picture. Not that the murder of black women was given major attention by these Keystone cops. Next, uh, actual Ripper murder took place February 18, 1911. This time, the scene of the crime was just past the Atlanta city limits, which meant the Atlanta police was not the primary investigative agency. Also meant they basically didn't care. But be that as it may, the murdered woman, who is still unidentified to this day, appeared to be about 25 years old. 
Her skull was smashed in. There was no mention in media reports of her throat being slashed. It was interesting to note that the killer took his time with her, and there were empty beer bottles uh, strewn around the body. April 5th, 1911, Georgia Brown was found dead. Since she was shot, not bashed in the head, most people don't believe she was a, a victim of the Atlanta Ripper. However, whether she was or not, uh, never be known, as her murder was never solved. Not that there was a great deal of effort put forth to try to solve it. Next murder that probably com was committed by this unknown killer took place May 27, 1911. And though there had been a fairly lengthy period of time between murders to this point, something changed. Murder took place February 27th seemed to be the beginning of a series of crimes committed by this creature of the shadow. May 27th, Mary Bell Walker was a cook. She was walking home from her job on this Saturday night and apparently came face to face with the mysterious Ripper. Found dead the next morning, her throat had been slashed. June 15th, the next victim was added to the list. Her name was Addie Watts. Found with her skull smashed in with a brick. Her body had been drugged into some shrubbery while she was beaten in the head with a train coupling pin. And as a final indignity, her throat was slashed. June 24th, another black woman by the name of Lizzie Watts was murdered. She'd been hit in the head, drug into some shrubbery. Her throat had been slashed. Now the police maintained that they'd begun to suspect a serial killer was at work. It appears it was an enterprising newspaper reporter who actually noticed the pattern. Until the paper started asking if there was a killer on the loose, the stories of the murder of black women, if they were reported at all, were related to the back pages with little detail. It was assumed the killings were simply the product of the degeneracy to be found in the black community, and certainly initially nobody on their right mind assumed that one person was committing all these murders. In fact, in response to the suggestion that there was a single killer, the so resistant were some authorities to the idea of one killer, it was claimed this was a convenient and fictional scapegoat for men to use to cover up the murder of their wives or girlfriends. That took some imagination to come up with. July 1st, another attack took place, but the purported second victim of the night managed to survive and give a brief description of her attacker. On this Saturday night, 20-year-old Emma Lou Sharp was sitting at home waiting for her mother to come back from the grocery store. Finally concerned it was taking her mother too long to return, Emma Lou began to walk to the grocery to see why her mother was so late. Well, she got to the grocery only to be told her mother had never been there. Well, with no idea what to do or where else to look for her mother, Emma Lou decided to return home. On the, on the way, she was approached in the street by a tall, broad-shouldered black man wearing a wide-brimmed hat. Beside herself with worry, she wasn't really paying attention when the man spoke to her. Asked her how she was feeling. She was baffled by the question, but answered fine and kept on walking. However, he stepped in front of her and blocked her path. Now concerned for her own safety, she tried to get around the man. As she brushed past him, she heard him say, uh, Don't be afraid. I never hurt girls like you. Next breath, he stabbed her in the back as he reached for her. Well, as she felt the knife go into her back, she screamed at the top of her lungs and took off running as fast as she could, blood streaming down her back. Luckily, some neighbors heard her screams and came running to her rescue. A mysterious black man in a wide-brimmed hat stopped chasing her and literally vanished into the shadows from which he had come. Well, the mother wasn't as lucky as the daughter. Neighbors who were searching for Emma Lou's attacker found her mother's body in some nearby bushes, been hit in the head with a brick, and her throat had been slashed. Well, 
On that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll finish up talking about the Atlanta Ripper in the next show. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening. <laughs>